Hi, I'm James Wedmore, host of the Mind Your Business podcast, and I've built an eight-figure year company selling digital products around my knowledge and expertise. In fact, this is what I've been doing in multiple niches for the past 15 years. And if you've ever wanted to do the same, or maybe you're trying, but you can't seem to get any traction, here's how I can help. As you can guess, you need an audience if you want to sell your stuff, right? But what if I told you that you don't need a big audience. You don't need millions of followers to get started. In fact, we see that it's with just your first 100 leads where you really start getting some momentum. I mean, think about it. Imagine that you're on the stage of a room filled with just 100 people in that audience right now. That's a lot of people. You don't think that a few of them would walk up to you after your talk and ask, hey, how can I keep working with you? Of course they would. And that's why I created your first 100 leads. It's a 14-video step-by-step training mini course that walks you through exactly how to get your first 100 leads fast. And the feedback and results from this free program have been amazing. Diane Shepard said, this is one of the best trainings I've ever taken. Jake Curry said, We have had 753 people sign up for this free training. Are you kidding me? Dan Netting said, I'm currently going through the first 100 leads training, and James, I gotta say, it's brilliant. This training is A to Z complete, and the best part is it's absolutely free. To register, simply click the link in the show notes of this episode. Thanks so much, and I'll see you there. Hey, and welcome to the Ambitious Bookkeeper podcast. I'm Serena Shoup. I am a CPA and mom of three, and I'm running a virtual bookkeeping business mostly from my home. You're in the right place if you're a bookkeeper, accountant, or an accounting student, and you know that your purpose is bigger than sitting in a cubicle. If you're ready to learn some actionable tips and strategies to help you start and grow a bookkeeping or accounting business, I hope you stick around. Hello, hello. Welcome to our December live Q&A. A while back, I took a social media hiatus <clears throat> and it did wonders for my mental health. So if you are struggling with any kind of burnout or just feeling like there's a lot of noise, taking a break from social media is a really good thing <laughs> as I'm talking to you on Facebook Live. But the reality of it is I don't really, I deleted all of the social media off of my phone for the month of October. And I only, I think I came into the Facebook groups only on my computer and it was, it was amazing. And I still haven't really like I still don't really go on Facebook on my phone anymore, and I don't have the Facebook Messenger app downloaded on my phone. So if you try to message me on Facebook to like my personal Facebook profile, I probably haven't answered it (laughs) because I don't have that app on my phone. I do have the business. So here's the other thing is Facebook. If you have a business page or a business Instagram, you can download Facebook or it's called Meta Business Manager. And it's an app that you can manage the messages, the comments, you can actually post to your stories and all that stuff without actually being in the Facebook or Instagram apps. And so that's how I managed things while we were taking a hiatus. So just thought I'd share that with you. So yeah, if you have any questions about anything, please go ahead and pop it in the chat so we can get those questions answered. Do you still do any type of bookkeeping or biz work during the time off? I do. So what the time off 
that the closure really is for is to take a break from client meetings, giving us permission to like not answer emails and interact in the groups and stuff to just take like a real break from client facing and customer facing stuff. I personally will be doing stuff behind the scenes in my businesses and it's more like the CEO work. So like planning for next year, kind of going through my pricing and and things like that. And for the team, it's kind of like if they want to take a vacation, they're able to now. So they can unplug and not be involved in anything work-related since there's nothing really day-to-day that needs to be done since our clients and our students have all been alerted. But if there is a project that they're working on that they want to do and, and whatnot, then they're they're welcome to. But there's not the pressure of like logging in on a daily basis to get like student support taken care of and things like that. So I hope that helps. Yes, sometimes it's really nice to be able to have like no distractions while you're working and get those like projects mapped out or planning for the future or for next year is really good to have that like space and quietness to do that without like feeling like you need to answer emails or put out fires or anything like that. So if you all can do something like that, I highly encourage you to. And sometimes you might like plan to have that like quiet work time, but really just you end up unplugging and that's just as valuable as a CEO, honestly, to have that space and that mental capacity to think about things. Because even when you take a break, like you're always, you're still going to be thinking about your businesses and like what you can do next year and having that, that space to do so is really important. Even if you're not working or like really doing any sort of output, like deliverables or anything like that. Just like hang out with your journal, (laughs) jot down all the ideas that you want to do and map out your projects for next year. Awesome. Carol has a question. Question on A2X. For pricing on this, do you have a client, the client pay this on their own or include it in your bookkeeping pricing? We include it in our bookkeeping pricing and pay for the subscription. I think it ends up being a little cheaper that way. So you just want to build it into your pricing and then make sure that you're creating like wiggle room for if they have to upgrade to like the next tier of A2X. So probably to cover yourself, I would I would create a cushion so that especially if the client is growing because there's different levels of subscriptions for A2X based on transaction volume. So if you know that the client is planning on growing, I would probably price it in to make sure that you're covered in case they go to the top tier of A2X, which I think is like $150 a month. So at the minimum, I would charge an extra $150 a month for the e-commerce type stuff. That way you're covering your A2X subscription. I hope that helps. I just liked, for me, the only subscriptions that we don't handle for the clients and, and include in our pricing is Gusto. I let our clients handle the gusto pricing because they it increases for every employee that you add and it's just easier for our clients to like be able to add their own employees and they handle the fee for it and all that. It's it's really hard to keep track of especially if you have clients that are growing quickly and hiring a lot. So that's the only subscription that we don't handle in-house and we pass on to the client. Everything else I like to keep included in the price of our accounting because 
it's just nicer for the client to not get like nickel and dimed for a bunch of different stuff. But it does require you kind of knowing the pricing levels, knowing when it's going to need to be bumped up. And that's why I say like create a cushion and just add the the like the top tier price to your pricing. That way you're const- you're always going to be covered for that for that subscription price. So same for zero. Like we basically build in the cost of zero, the price of zero at the top tier subscription. Even if our clients don't use that top tier subscription, that way we have the wiggle room to upgrade them if we need to. Yeah. Hey, Erin, I'd like to create a custom budget template to offer my clients. Are there people I can outsource this to, i.e. share my ideas with and have them create this like an Excel guru? Maybe check on Upwork or Fiverr or something. The other thing too is see if there's something already created that you can kind of just tweak. Like for LiveFlow, they have budget templates that you can just download, but there's lots of templates out there. So I'm just curious, are you trying to create like a dashboard or a budget, just like an Excel spreadsheet? There's probably some Excel gurus in our group if you want to post in there as well. What do you think about migrating a client to zero starting December rather than January? I'm thinking of doing this in order to switch invoicing ASAP. Yeah. So if you have clients that are using like the invoicing features and you want to make sure that January is clean and ready to go, that's why I'm working on a migration during December so that we're going to basically have everything linked and ready to go in January. And there might be like a week gap where I have to like book a journal entry to pull that history into zero so that we have good comparatives. But we will be like finishing out the year in QuickBooks. That way, the reports that get sent to their tax preparer are complete from QuickBooks, if that makes sense. So with any migration, there's always going to be a period of time where there's where you're doing like a We'll be back after a quick break. This episode of the Ambitious Bookkeeper podcast is sponsored by my brand new free training, The Ultimate Guide to Creating a Profitable Bookkeeping Business. In just one hour, you will learn three keys to creating and launching a profitable bookkeeping business. We will map out your path to creating a bookkeeping or accounting business that keeps you in control of your time, priorities, and expertise from someone who built a six-figure firm on part-time hours. That's right. You can stay in control of your time, keep family as your priority, and serve your clients well. It just takes a little strategy up front, and I'm going to help you with that during this free training. So head over to the show notes to sign up now for the next training and find out how you can choose the work you do, kick imposter syndrome to the curb, use tech to be super efficient, which all leads to a profitable business. Just head on over to ambitiousbookkeeper.com slash training, and I will see you there. What is the word? Where it's like mirrored, where you're basically duplicating your work. So you want to minimize that as much as possible. So for like for the invoicing, you could set up like there's a couple ways to do it. I prefer to if QuickBooks is clean, I want to have history in zero. So at least a year of comparatives. So I prefer to use JetConvert to migrate, which means you have to start the migration before before you want to start using zero because 
you don't set up the zero file with a jet convert migration. They set up the zero file. So you have to kind of like work on the timing with that. And that's why you end up having like some duplication, I guess, where you're entering stuff in QuickBooks still and zero. But if you want someone to start invoicing as of January and you don't aren't necessarily worried about bringing over history, you could just create a new file and then create like bring in journal entries for the balances for each month if you want to do comparatives that way as well. And it makes it kind of it makes it kind of manual, but that's a way to do it without having to duplicate like doing stuff in QuickBooks and Zero at the same time. <laughs> so yeah. From Aaron, budget spreadsheet template, but very customizable and just a value-added component. Yeah, I feel you on this because I always feel like my spreadsheets are not that pretty when I look at other people's stuff. Um, <laughs> but there's only so pretty that you can make an Excel spreadsheet. But anyways, I feel you on this. I would probably try to outsource it to someone like maybe on Fiverr Upwork. You might be surprised at what you might find. Or maybe even in our group, if someone has something that they're willing to share or sell, that would be great too. Yeah. Carol says, what are your thoughts of helping a new small e-commerce with starting with DIY? <laughs> Do you? I'm like shaking my head before I even finish reading this. Do you have or had any that are DIY? So I would say DIY e-commerce is a no-go. I've tried that in the past and there's just so many complexities that it just never worked out. They never stayed on top of things. And I would rather get paid like stupid small amounts of money knowing that I, like then rather than like having them do it. Obviously, I wouldn't do it for free, but there's a certain point where like you're going to be in there cleaning things up and fixing things for them anyway. So it's like you have to figure out if it's really worth it for you. But there's so many complexities with e-commerce, especially if they're not like if you set them up on A2X from the beginning, that eliminates a lot of problems. But if they use a different integration software, it's going to be a disaster. So you could maybe get away with it with A2X, but you would still want to monitor that integration and check up on things. And then if you end up having clearing accounts because there's multiple payment processors, that's like just too complex for most business owners to understand a clearing account and how to reconcile that and all that good stuff. So I would try not to do that. <laughs> I would try very hard to just be like, look, it's going to be much easier if you pay me three or $400 a month to just stay on top of this for you and call it a day, depending on what your price point is, obviously. But a DIY e-commerce, probably not because they're still going to need like education and know how to stay up on top of sales tax thresholds and all that kind of stuff. So sometimes it's not worth the amount of effort. And what do I want to say? Like a lot of business owners will be like, can you just teach me how to do this? And it's like, not really, because I spent 10 years of my career learning all the nuances about this. And I have a degree and you don't have that same degree and the same career path. So it's going to be a lot more difficult <laughs> for you to manage it. It's a touchy thing. There's always going to be that business owner out there that really wants to DIY it. But if like you could try it if you want, Carol, but I'm just I'm just saying like it might not be worth your time and headache to try and teach somebody and walk them through it in the end. It's just sometimes it's easier for you to just manage it yourself 
But if they're not willing to pay for it, there's that too. But there's probably, <laughs> yeah, there's probably someone out there that's willing to DIY it with a client and let them handle that. So I initially had a DIY offer and I would do that with e-commerce and all sorts of different types of businesses. And that's when I just stopped even offering DIY because it was like, there's too many complexities, especially with e-commerce. So now if someone wants to DIY, like they literally can only be selling courses and they have to use the exact same systems that I'm going to set them up on. <laughs> can you teach me? Um, no. <laughs> yeah. Because of all the like e-commerce is just crazy. The sales tax, the clearing accounts. Yeah. So <laughs> anywho. Yeah. So nowadays I don't do DIY for anyone other than like a straight service-based business. And even, even they, like even them, sometimes it's like, if they're not going to stay on top of it, it's pointless to, I just feel weird charging people that aren't like utilizing things. But anyways, side note. Aaron says, speaking of clearing accounts, is there anywhere I can go to work through what a Shopify clearing account reconciliation would look like? It's so hard to figure out reconciliations. So basically, when you think through like what the purpose is of the Shopify clearing account, you really only need the Shopify clearing account if Shopify has multiple payment processors linked up. So Shopify payments, PayPal, Stripe, like if there's multiple avenues that people are able to pay through. That's the only time you really need a Shopify clearing account if you're using A2X. So basically what you're doing is you're booking all of your sales to Shopify clearing and then the journal entry that not, sorry, not all of your sales. You're booking all of the money that comes in the bank to Shopify clearing. And then all of the journal entries that get created to book the sales entry they're debiting Shopify clearing and crediting the sales, various sales accounts. Sometimes it's just straight up sales. Sometimes you have it broken down by department. It depends on how you set your A2X up. So the way you would reconcile that is anything that's left in the Shopify clearing account should be a deposit in transit. So you should, in theory, be able to tie it back to a deposit that Shopify is holding onto that they haven't actually deposited into the bank accounts yet. I think. Is that correct? That might be, I might be saying it backwards. I have to think through that. But like real talk, our Shopify clearing accounts like rarely ever reconcile to the penny. There's always some weird going on <laughs> because returns, discounts, sales tax, all sorts of weird stuff that goes on. So you have to kind of decide at what point you're okay with there being a small balance and then making sure that the balance doesn't like grow too much and it's always about the same and it's not too much. Like I would say under, well, it depends on the volume of the client, honestly, but we have a client that does about six or $700,000 a year in revenue and their clearing account usually hovers around one to $2,000 every month. And <laughs> yeah, and it is literally not worth our time and effort to go through and figure out penny by penny Basically, what you want to do is you want to run the clearing account and just kind of like eyeball it to see if like the total deposits match the total sales, like for the most part should be like an in and out. So in zero, there's a really cool feature that you can like kind of collapse the GL detail by day. That way, like it just sums everything up by the date and we're able to kind of pinpoint where there's an issue really easily that way. But yeah, there's always a balance in there and it generally has to do with like the deposits in transit. 
So your goal there is to not have it. It's never going to be zero. That's the thing. But when you do a reconciliation, the purpose of that is to say, okay, there is a balance. Have we validated that this is a legitimate balance or is this something that we need to dig into? So that's always the purpose of the reconciliation. It doesn't mean that it's going to be zero every time. It's just that we've pinpointed why there's a balance and it's valid. And then you just go from there <laughs> and hope that it doesn't keep growing month over month. And if it does keep growing, then then there's a disconnect somewhere and you have to look into part of like maybe the integration isn't set up properly. Maybe the sales tax entry isn't getting booked or whatever, right? So I hope that helps with the clearing account situation. <laughs> I had a client that was considering doing DIY with, they wanted to go into QuickBooks and classify their uncategorized directly in QuickBooks. I thought this might be a good way of seeing how it might go. Now I'm having to clean up their mistakes. Uh, makes me realize they aren't a good fit for DIY. Yeah. I just prefer when our clients don't touch their zero file. <laughs> like the only thing our clients are allowed to do is create invoices. And one of our clients like will go in there and accept, like apply a payment to an invoice when he receives a check. And that also is kind of messed up. Like, so <laughs> it's just better when our clients just stay out of the bookkeeping completely. I map the pending payments to a Shopify pending balance account. And that way I can see if it's something pending or an error. That's a good, that's a good idea too. That's a really good idea. Awesome. Yeah. And I know probably the next question is coming is like, when are you going to do an e-commerce course? Like never. <laughs> Just kidding. I did do the e-commerce the e workshop because I felt like there needed. So what's in that workshop basically is it kind of gives an overview of what are the things you need to watch out for if you're thinking of offering e-commerce, because there's a lot of newer bookkeepers that come into this space and they see that the opportunity, right? There's a huge opportunity to serve e-commerce clients because like our world is like a hundred percent e-commerce now. However, like it is complex and I wanted to make sure that people understood the complexities before they start agreeing to doing these types of engagements because I've worked with a lot of bookkeepers that come to me and they're like, I feel like I'm in way over my head. And sometimes they are in over their head. And so that workshop is really meant to make sure that you don't get yourself in over your head. I do share an SOP, like I said, that we use internally for the A2X setup and managing the A2X integrations and things like that. But even our e-commerce clients are fairly simple. Like the one that I told you that has, they're making about six or $700,000 a year in revenue. Only half of that is e-commerce. The other half is digital courses. So even they have a relatively... And they're probably the most complex that we work with. They have sales tax in probably eight or nine different states now. So that's another thing that you can start to realize is like every state has a revenue threshold, but a lot of states also have a transaction threshold. And that is why this client is in so many different states because they have so many tiny transactions. <laughs> and it like really sucks for them because they're selling like little tiny things that are like 10 or $15 each, but all those little transactions add up. And so they end up with Nexus in a lot of different states, even though their revenue is not that high. So yeah, <laughs> 
So there's the sales tax thing that you also need to be very well versed in if you're going to offer e-commerce services, because you can't do e-commerce without offering sales tax. I mean, you can to a certain extent, but they would have to be like micro e-commerce and you would still need to keep an eye on it for them. And that's the area that like once a client reaches a sales tax nexus, we have a process for hooking them up to tax jar and then tax jar handles the filings going forward. But there's always the monitoring that needs to be done and making sure that someone's looking at the reports to see when they're going to hit nexus and then making sure that that the sales tax payments are being booked correctly and all those little tiny things that machines still can't do for us. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Question. I have a client that their main income is tutoring, but they now have an online course and also subscription to use their platform. Will that be considered digital goods? In some states, yes. I'm not sure how to research for it to see if it's taxable or not. It depends on the state. So the way that I would do that is the same way I would do a sales tax nexus analysis for a product-based client. So an e-commerce client, you have to get access to the report that shows where all those sales are happening. And there's a good possibility that they don't even have that data unless you look in their credit card processing platform. So like for instance, since I'm a course creator, (laughs) I use Kajabi and a lot of our clients use Kajabi too, but Kajabi doesn't actually collect addresses. It's the payment processor that does. So PayPal, I know they have the information, but it's not very easy to get. I mean, there's reports to get it, but it's kind of clunky. And then Stripe tracks any, basically any credit card processor has to have the address. So that's how you know where they're servicing the clients and where their customers are buying from. So it's the same process that you would use for a product-based business. You need to get the reports of their payment processors, kind of combine them and see how many transactions are happening in each state and what revenue thresholds are happening in each state. So I basically end up doing like however many payment processors there are. So say there's Stripe and there's PayPal. So there's two payment processors that they're pulling in money for their courses. We would start with one, export all the activity for an entire 12 months, the previous 12 months, not just the calendar year, but like a previous 12 month history of all their transactions from Stripe. And then I would put it into like a pivot table (laughs) to analyze the data to see like, hopefully there's a state field. So I would do a pivot on each state and then the number of transactions and then the revenue. So they're mostly doing this in Texas schools. So if most of their customers are in Texas, that's great. So I would go to the Texas Department of Revenue or whatever the comptroller website and search their little taxable goods database or whatever for digital goods and then see I don't know if I don't I don't think Texas actually taxes digital goods but you could do like a quick google search make sure you're looking at their actual comptroller's website for whichever search results you get and see if digital goods are even taxable if not it's a moot point but you want to make sure that whatever services they have are not also taxable so cuz Texas when I just googled it the little quick search I did says some services are taxable. So you want to make sure that you read into the services definitions on their comptroller's website and figure out if what they're doing is taxable. And then the other thing, if for digital goods, each state has their own definitions of digital goods, and some of them are very vague. 
And so whatever you end up doing, this is where it gets into a gray area. So you still have to talk with the business owner and give them what the rules are and say, okay, if these are the rules, like if the rules say anything live is not digital, but if it's like a PDF or an ebook or whatever, then those are considered taxable goods. And then you kind of talk to the business owner and see how they want to handle it. It's still ultimately up to them. Sometimes it's not worth the, and this is the work that I do with clients too. Like we have clients that technically have hit thresholds in certain areas, but like barely. And so they've made the executive decision to say, it is not worth our time and money to go in and register at the state. We'll just wait. And if we get penalized, we'll gladly pay the penalties. Like you can, a business owner can make that decision. And so we help them come to the, either that conclusion or the conclusion of let's just register and stay on top of it. But then there's an administrative fee of that because now they have to pay us to register it, to stay on top of it, to pay maybe $20 a month in tax or to file a zero return if there's nothing sold in the future in that state. And so, yeah, there's a whole... Like it's definitely a gray area, but whatever you decide, you just document the conversation with the client and like kind of say like, this is the reason we're going with this route. If it's a gray area, this client has this, this, and this product. And this is why we believe it falls into this category. It's just really good to document all of that stuff. And for you in the future so that you can remember like, well, why didn't we register in that state? We probably should have. And then if you go back and see, oh, I had notes that we had a conversation and the client decided that it wasn't worth the time and effort to register. They'd rather just pay the penalties if they ever get you know, caught in the, in the future. So those are the nuances with sales tax <laughs> that you have to be aware of and comfortable advising clients through if you want to be dealing with e-commerce and courses and all that kind of stuff. I've been considering closing down my business. I have two clients who really would like to hire me as an employee to still do their books and also help with general running of their admin financial stuff. All virtually hours would still be flexible. I know all the benefits of owning my own business, but I'm at the point. I just don't want all the responsibility. I've worked with one guy for five years now. Any thoughts on things to consider? So it sounds like you've already done a lot of like evaluating the pros and cons. And one thing that you just said was, I'm at the point, I just don't want all the responsibility. And that is totally okay. <laughs> like it is okay to decide, like I tried it. It was fun for a bit, but the responsibility and the anxiety it caused or whatever, like whatever is happening with you in your life. So like sometimes it's just not the right season and that's okay too. I've actually had several students that have come to me later on and they're like ashamed to tell me that they shut down their business. But honestly, it's like, but now, you know, like now, you know, the other, the, the other side of the lawn, right? Like what the other side of the grass, <laughs> like, is it greener for some of us? It is some of it's not like, it's okay. So I just want to give you permission to like, just, I wouldn't make any brash decisions in moments of like, <laughs> when like, there's just a lot going on and you kind of just want to throw in the towel. Cause I was there a little while ago, like, and I'm glad I didn't just blow everything up. Right. So take your time making the decision. You could just dwindle down your business and go back to handling just like one or two clients and then make the decision. But honestly, like it is totally okay. <laughs> like 
I don't want anyone to ever feel like they have to start a business or like keep doing it when it's just like eating you alive. Like it's not for everybody, but at least you tried it and you got a lot of, a lot of valuable experience. Like the, the thing that I think of is like, if I were to ever go back to corporate at this point, I would be like an even better teammate and an even better leader because of all the things that I've learned by running a business. And I would be like the best person for someone to hire at this point because I've learned so freaking much by running my own business. And so you're going to bring so much value to any employer in the future, having just run your own business for a couple years. So don't discount that experience either. Make sure you get paid well, like negotiate higher pay, negotiate more benefits, negotiate your schedule, your time off, because we all know now what's possible. And yeah. So anyways, there's my, there's me on my soapbox. Don't ever feel like you can't just stop doing something. If it's not lighting you up, if it's eating you alive, if it's causing you health problems, anxiety, do what you can to work through it. But sometimes the answer is to to change directions. Yeah. I feel I can bring lots of value to them from your experience. Absolutely. Like so much value. Like we all know now what goes into running a business. Any business owner would be ecstatic to have us on their team. So kudos to you for working on getting that clarity and being honest with yourself and not pushing through something that's making you miserable. This is a good live. This is really good. Lots of good stuff. We're going deep today. Deep on e-commerce, sales tax, quitting our businesses. <laughs> going back to migration to zero with doing this month for January. When do you connect the bank? So I would wait until either the very end of December or literally like January 1st. Unless you have bank access to be able to connect to the bank yourself, I would book a time with the client to say like on December 30th or December 29th, let's get on the phone, connect the bank feeds, or you could wait until after January because usually bank feeds, you can select a date to go back a couple days. So that's the other option. You could either do it a few days early or a few days after the fact, just like inventory, right? Like a lot of businesses don't actually count inventory on the very last day of the year. <laughs> They do it one or two before or one or two after, and then you add in your purchases and take out your sales. So it's the same thing. You can just do it a day or two behind and then backdate the integration. Usually that's probably the better option. And then if for some reason some of the transactions are missing, you can just download the Excel sheet and import them into zero. I hope that helps. Going back to pivot tables for sales tax, I haven't revisited the course in a while. Do you cover how to do this in the course? Basically, you just want to download a detailed spreadsheet of payment activity from any payment processor for whether it's Stripe or PayPal, but make sure that the activity detail has the total amount of the sale, the state and zip code probably, but at least the state of where the sale took place. And so... This is going to be the billing address. So if they're not actually in the same state that they have the billing address, it's going to be a little off, but it doesn't matter. And so then you do a pivot on each state on the column of the state, sum up the totals and do a count of however many transactions. So those are the three like columns in your pivot table. And so if you don't know how to do a pivot table, Google it. 
<laughs> there's got to be YouTube videos galore on how to do pivot table. They're very easy, actually. So yeah, those are the three fields that you want to pull into the pivot table. The state, count of transactions, and sum of the totals, because you need to see for each state how many transactions happened and what the sum of the transactions have been for the last 12 months, because each state has their different thresholds. And then once you have that, go each state line by line, go to the State Department of Revenue, see what their transaction threshold is or their dollar threshold is for sales. And then there's another level. Some states are like, once you hit this for the previous calendar year, and then some of them are, say, say in the last 12 months. So then you have to evaluate it that way too. So then each state gets its own little analysis where you have to go dig into their rules and what's up to date right now, the products, all the things. And that's why we charge a good amount for a sales tax nexus analysis, especially if the client is selling into lots of different states. So yeah, that is that. Let me see, where are we? Going to take the big leap in January and leave my job. I have enough savings to float me for six months. That is incredible. Congratulations. Is it feasible to think I will have clients before I run out of funds? Yes. You will have clients before you run out of funds. I guarantee it. I mean, I can't guarantee it, but I guarantee it. Like if you do the work and you continue to put yourself out there, make connections, build relationships, ask for referrals, like you no longer can be shy about things. You'll be fine though. You'll do great. So number one though, make sure your information is on our community spreadsheet there should be like an ambitious bookkeeper community Google sheet, please put your information in there. And if you niche, niche, have a specialty, that is even better because when I receive a referral that is not a course creator and is not willing to go on zero, I look at that spreadsheet first to know who to send them to. So if your information is on that spreadsheet, you get first dibs at referrals. I don't give the referrals to everybody. I look to see who's the best fit for that referral if I've already had a conversation with that client or whatever. So honestly, like if you specialize in a software and you have a handful of industries that you specialize, it's going to be easier to get clients. Okie doke. Tax jar. So tax jar, yes. If you link your payments processors to tax jar, it will then give you visibility and it'll alert you when you're or show you like you can run a report in there that's like a nexus analysis. So for our clients that are already on tax jar, we are able to just monitor that every quarter and make sure that we're registering for estate sometime. But it's the initial analysis that if you're not able to pull all that history into tax jar and you don't want to start a subscription. But yeah, if you already are familiar with TaxJar, that's another option to just link all your payment processors for the client into TaxJar and let TaxJar do the analysis. Do, do, do. Thank you for posting the sales tax workshop. And what approximately a good amount to charge for a sales tax analysis? So a while back, Avalara will do a sales tax analysis, and I believe that they charge 400 and some dollars per state. Per state. So when you think about a client that's literally selling across the whole United States, that can add up quite a bit. So we, I usually charge around a thousand to fifteen hundred for a sales tax analysis, and that's kind of arbitrary, but also like as long as I get access to the reports I need, 
it just takes a few hours. So it's, it's not a bad deal. <laughs> it's just a matter of, and then we have, we keep a spreadsheet of all of like, as every time we do an analysis, like we go and update it to make sure that it has the current thresholds and everything. So like we have a, a general spreadsheet of like what most thresholds are. And so we can kind of like, we have a good idea of where they're hitting Nexus before doing like super detailed analysis. But yeah, I, I honestly, you could charge whatever you want, <laughs> but it's good to anchor in the price that Avalara charges with your client saying like Avalara would charge you $400 per state for this analysis. And we see that you're already selling into 20 states at least. So we're going to charge you a thousand and that seems like a deal for them, right? So price anchoring, great tool to use. <laughs> no question is a stupid question, but what do you consider audit proof books? Is this covered somewhere in the course? <clears throat> so I don't know if I cover this in the course or not, but audit proof books are a receipt for every transaction, which most clients are not so great at this, but we give them the tools to be able to do this better, which is HubDoc. Reconciled bank accounts, someone looking at their accounting and having proof for every transaction, basically. That's what audit proof books are in the terms of an IRS audit. Okay. I'm not talking about like an independent auditor, but for an IRS audit, if you look at what the requirements are for a small business for audit for IRS documentation, just follow that. And you could, if your client, here's the thing is your client is ultimately responsible for keeping all of that documentation. We are not, we can help them with it. We can give them the tools and we can lead a horse to water, but you can't make your client save receipts. That is on them. You can say, if you use our tools, you will have audit proof books because we're going to reconcile your bank every month. We're going to make sure that what's in the bank account always has proof for each transaction and, and all that good stuff. But ultimately it's up to them. So it's not guaranteeing that they're never going to get audited. That's the other thing. Like being audit proof means if you were to get audited, you have all the documentation to prove your way through an audit and all that. And that's just the bookkeeping side. It's not going to audit proof any questionable tax positions you take <laughs> or things like that. That's on the client and their tax preparer. But as far as the bookkeeping goes, that's what I would say. There's proof for every transaction. So if your client is on board with that, great, but they have to be on board with it and send you all the documentation. I would say like maybe two or three of our clients are actually at that level where they give us receipts for literally everything. And <laughs> one of those clients is probably me, <laughs> like my own books, right? So it's like when I think about the, the number of clients that we do work for, I'm pretty sure like maybe three or four of our clients submit receipts for everything. And so those are really the only clients that would be audit proof. That was a very long-winded answer. I hope that was helpful. <laughs> okay. Do, do, do. All righty. Cool. That's it for our questions. All right. Thank you all. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you to everyone who helps make this podcast possible. Content and interviews are produced by me, Serena Shu. Our intro and outro music is written and performed by my brother, Ian Gilliam. Editing is also by Ian using his awesome sound engineering skills along with Descript software. Hosting and publishing is by Buzzsprout. 
And you can check out the show notes for links to all of these amazing resources and resources mentioned in the episode. Be ambitious.